Hey, everybody. Welcome to Podcasting for Humans. Honest conversations about the art and heart of podcasting. This is a show about the inner world of podcasters, about the hopes, fears, regrets, struggles, and lessons learned that come with creating a podcast. I am your host, Richard Clark. I'm the owner of Area Code Audio, a podcasting agency that helps people to build deep connections with their audience through a consistent and authentic podcast presence. And today, I'm pretty excited to be joined by Kirk Hamilton. He's the host uh, or co-host of two podcasts that I listen to personally. Triple Click is one of them, but then also uh, Strong Songs, which has had like a really interesting run over the last few years, I guess. How long has it been, Kirk? I'm in with season six. It's like the sixth year of the show, technically. Got it. So like five or six years, depending on how you count it. So tell us about what Strong Songs is and how that podcast sort of came to be. Strong Songs is a music podcast. It's a music explainer podcast. It's the big picture way of describing it, I guess. Um, I am a musician. That's my background and training. And it's basically me taking all of that training and using it to explain music to people in a way that helps them hear more when they listen to their favorite songs. So I pick a strong song for most episodes. It'll be, you know, I don't know, uh, the upcoming season six premiere is on In Your Eyes, the Peter Gabriel song. So I I pick that song. It's a very strong song. And I go and learn about it and then spend a while recreating all of the parts on my own. So I try to kind of recreate the recording. I learn all the guitar parts and the keyboard parts and recreate the drums and the bass and that kind of gets me inside the song. And then I try to bring people in with me to show them what's going on and explain it. Like I get into music theory and technical stuff, but I try not to go too into the weeds on that. It's not really a music theory show. It's yeah. more about approachable music listening, even for people who don't know a lot of theory. So I have a kind of broad range of listeners. I, there are definitely people who listen who are professional musicians, but also people who don't play any music at all. And the idea is to kind of bridge that gap and just help people listen more closely and pay closer attention to the music that they love and then to all music when they listen to it. That's kind of the goal of the show. Yeah, and I I think I was going to say, like, it does feel like uh, certainly a show that fans of music will enjoy, but also people who just, like, have music in their life and it's sort of ambient for them, I find that it, like, makes that music a lot more meaningful in some really interesting, accessible, and surprising ways. That's good um, that you feel that way. That's that's definitely the goal of the show. I think you say music fans, but I think that basically everyone is a music fan. Mm. Um, just some people don't describe themselves that way, and some people think you need to have a lot of musical training or knowledge yeah. to be a true connoisseur, and that's yeah. just really not true. I mean, music is one of the most fundamental human expressions that exists. It transcends language. I mean, it is a language. It's like the fundamental language of the universe almost. (laughs) Um, So I I think that everybody loves music and we kind of devalue it a lot in our society, obviously like literally in the way that music has Uh become so valueless in the, in the era of streaming, but also just in the way that people pay attention to it and what it's used for. And yeah, I mean, I, I think what you described, someone who hears music kind of ambiently realizing, oh, this Peter Gabriel song that I've heard a thousand times is actually the result of all of these amazing musicians coming together to create this incredible thing. I think like 
helping people realize that helps people realize how much there is to pay attention to, like how much music there is around them that they could spend more time with and then have a more rewarding relationship with. I love that. Tell us about like the start of Strong Songs. Why did you decide to make that podcast? So I was um, working at Kotaku, the video game website. I worked there through most of the 2010s, and it was kind of an interesting part of my career or my professional life because it was very fun in a lot of ways, very stressful in a lot of ways, just like an interesting job being an editor at a big website and an interesting challenge to write about video games, but it was never my main thing. I was a musician. I went to music school. I'm a jazz saxophonist. I learned a bunch of instruments. It was the core of myself is music. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I was always kind of finding ways to sneak music onto Kotaku to talk about video game music or sometimes just like write blog posts about Miles Davis albums that nobody read. But yeah. like three people would comment and be like, wow, this is cool. I didn't expect to see this on a video game website. So I had a podcast with um, Jason Schreier, my now triple click co-host, longtime yep. friend and colleague. Um, at the time it was just the two of us though. Now Maddie Myers, who was at Kotaku as well, joined us for triple click and the three of us make that show. So when we first started, uh, split screen, it was called Kotaku split screen. That was our podcast. I, it was just kind of for fun. We just want, Jason always wanted to make a podcast and I realized that it was sort of something I could maybe be good at and had never really had a podcast. Mm. So I was making the show for us. You know, I was the one who engineered the show and, edited the recording sessions and kind of realized, oh, this is a skill set that I already have from making music, from using, you know, audio workstations. And then, you know, it was kind of a a natural fit for some skills I already had. So we were making that show. And I started doing a music pick at the end of every episode where we talk about, um, actually, it was at the beginning of episodes first. And then it started getting longer and longer. And we realized we were spending (laughs) the first 10 minutes of our podcast, like not talking about video games. And that Uh was kind of not ideal and I think some people were like dude I just want to, like the music stuff is cool but <laughs> talk about games so it was at the beginning of, the, of episodes and then it moved to the end but it was basically me picking a song that I liked and sharing a little clip of it and that that was kind of it at first and then it started getting more and more elaborate where I'd be like going back and editing myself in to say hey check out this guitar solo right here and then they layer it if you really listen you can hear the two parts <laughs> and it was kind of so that was the germ of strong songs now if you listen to strong songs that's basically what the show is yeah so jason and i would talk about he would always say oh you've got to do you've got to explain why toto's africa is such a great song and we would kind of joke about it and then i was like you know i'm going to actually make an episode of a podcast about toto's africa mm. And just see what that's like, because I had a take, like I had an explanation for why that song is so great. Uh-huh. And so I went and recorded that and that became the first episode of Strong Songs. That's still the first episode of Strong Songs. You can, if you go back and listen, it doesn't have the Strong Songs theme music or oh, anything. It's not called Strong Songs. It's just me. And it starts with this, I don't know, some little jam that I, of a song I never finished. And then I just come on. I'm like, hi, everyone. Uh so I don't know, maybe this will be a podcast, maybe it won't. But anyway, uh-huh, here's why uh-huh. Toto's Africa is a cool song. And then it proceeds to be a little 23-minute Strong Songs episode. It's so interesting that you started Strong Songs clearly like as a little bit of an experiment. Like you sort of just put – you didn't agonize about all the things people tend to agonize when they start a podcast, which is like, you know – theme music and definite format and even like the question I always get that drives me nuts is like how long should it be which Mm. uh, is always a depends kind of answer um (laughs) but like 
the, when did the podcast like start to sort of fall into place to where not only you knew what it was, but also you kind of knew what was working and what wasn't? Pretty quickly. It's okay. it's it was interesting. It was a very organic process. I mean, like I made that Africa episode and I believe that so I made that and then um I think I put it out on SoundCloud and I was already getting ready to make a show. And this was so this was twenty I guess this was twenty eighteen. And that was when I left Kotaku. And I was planning to leave Kotaku for a long time. Like, you know, I had been Boy, I mean, it's a whole saga there, but like Univision had bought Kotaku or bought Gawker Media after the Hulk Hogan thing, whatever. Anyone who doesn't follow media closely <laughs> doesn't need to hear yeah. about all of this. Yeah, and it was clearly changing. I had been there for seven years. I feel like that's kind of just a, a good amount of time to have a job. Yeah. And I wanted to move on to something else anyways. And so I was planning to leave and I was thinking, oh, well, you know, this could be kind of cool. Like Jason and I had gotten better at podcasting and I had realized podcasting is kind of a big deal. Like this is something that fits with some of my skills and I really like doing and maybe I could do that. I don't know. Mm -hmm. So I was planning to leave and thinking, oh, maybe this music show, like maybe I can make something out of this and that can be a project. It wasn't like I had a whole year-long plan or anything. Mm-hmm. But when I made that first Toto's Africa episode, you know, I I listened back to it and it was good. I mean, I listen back to it now. It's still good. I, mm-hmm. I think I pronounced Jeff uh, Porcaro's name wrong. I think I call him Jeff Porcaro. There's okay. like stuff that I would fix. Yeah. And it's very elementary. I think I just play piano. But it's the fundamental thing is still there. I mean, it. I listen back and I'm and I'm struck by how well it works. I explain the vocal harmonies on the chorus. I really get into, I help people hear those middle voices. And those are, that's the thing that makes Toto's Africa great yeah. is the, the stacked harmonies on the chorus. It's that it's not just like one lead melody part. Yeah. It's the sound of the, of the harmonized voices. And that's like why that song is so cool. So I go back and listen and that's, that's it. And that's still what Strong Songs is now. So that yeah. germ of it was there. It just, I got better at, producing it and the show got more elaborate the recreations got much more elaborate the whole thing just kind of got fleshed out but it was pretty clear from the start uh that it was good so when i launched it as strong songs i think i already had another episode ready to go the next one was on you can call me al another very easy episode to make uh the paul simon song that has a ton of stuff going on in it and then it was really just off to the races i mean i think those early episodes hold up you can if people who listen to the show now they'll certainly hear that it's become just much more elaborately produced and more professional more consistent but it's still pretty much the same show then uh that it is now yeah it sounds like you had a sense that like the show works um Mm -hmm. from the very beginning really yeah at what point did you i feel like there's a distinction though between the show works and this is going to work like long term it's going to be sustainable Mm. so what was the moment that you kind of felt like okay this is gonna actually be something that's sustainable because correct me if i'm wrong but you're someone who is sort of living the dream of a lot of people listening to this podcast which is like you're a full-time podcaster between this and triple click yeah yeah that's correct when did that become clear that that was going to happen uh it was gradual i guess so you know it's really good that i have the two shows and that is that is correct and i'm i feel very grateful for that that strong songs and triple click both 
they both pay like fine, but together they pay well. And it's mm-hmm. a good, I'm, I'm doing fine. Like I really can just make these shows and I'm making a sustainable income off of them. And that allows me to actually, well, it's, I guess living the dream, right. Is, is that if you, if you are want to be a full-time podcaster, then this is the dream yeah. to me. The dream is something that I can actually make into a sustainable non-growth project and I think that is like it's putting my money where my mouth is in a way like that I have the ability to do that uh, is a very hard thing to do in the economic and cultural climate just in America, <laughs> like yeah. the way that that this country works and how hard it is to make a living and be sustainable and then build something that you like doing to the point where you can say, I don't want this to grow anymore. I don't want to spend more time doing it. I just want to keep doing it and keep making it as good as it is. And there is enough audience and I'm making enough money on it for that to just be sustainable as long as I can keep it going. So yeah, I, to me, that is a a really tremendous thing and I feel very fortunate. So when did that happen? Um, I don't know. Pretty early. I mean, I was so we kept making split screen for a while for Gawker Media or whatever they were then called Univision slash GMG. I don't know. (laughs) I kept making it as a freelancer. So that was paying a little bit. Um, It was I make more from it now that I'm a co-owner of Triple Click, um, which is the same show and the same amount of work. So that's nice. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it uh, it was paying enough that I was making my expenses. It was not probably like a sustainable amount of income, but it was enough that I had some savings and I was ready to not be, you know, to, to be in a growth period after leaving Kotaku. So there was a minute there where I was like, okay, we'll, we'll kind of see how this goes. But at the very least, I'm not just hemorrhaging money because I do have some freelance money coming in and I have this plan to try to grow. In 2019, I launched the Patreon for Strong Songs. Um, I guess it's, yeah, I can see here, it's five albums that shaped me. So that was in May of 2019. So I launched the show in the fall of 2018. And then about six months later, I launched a Patreon. And I had been planning to do that for a while. I talked to some friends who are, you know, very successful in that area, which is another sort of advantage of already having worked in media and knowing Mm. people who who have Patreons and have crowdfunded podcasts that do well, just about kind of came up with a basic plan for how to do it and then launched that. And it grew slowly, but it did grow steadily. Okay. So I would say at first it wasn't clear that Strong Songs was going to be, you know, a major income source for me, but that didn't really matter because it just needed to be a little bit more than I was making to be sustainable. And I kind of believed in the product. And then that same right around then, um, a couple things happened. So in this is great that I have all my episodes up. So also in May of that year, I did an episode on Hamilton and mm-hmm. Lin-Manuel Miranda tweeted out the show because mm-hmm. he listened to it and he said it was good. And that was really big, like just for my self-confidence. And also, I think it introduced a fair number of people to the show. Yeah. And then around that same time, like in 2019 and into 2020, a few really big podcasts, like people who make big podcasts, Um, Merlin Mann, who is a wonderful dude who makes a number of really cool podcasts. He became a fan and started promoting it on his show. And Lee Sales, um, an Australian news anchor and amazing woman who I've like since gone and done a live show in Australia with, Uh um, is a really big fan of the show as well and was an incredible supporter of it in Australia. So she promoted the show on her podcast, um, Chat 10 Looks 3. And so there was kind of this 
cloud of support coming from outside right around then 2019 into 2020 that like caused the show to grow in a couple of important ways and also caused me to become more confident and just to be like okay hell yeah people really like this this show kind of feels like something i'm going to start really going for it and i started putting more and more work in the episodes started getting more elaborate and more dramatic and i think that just caused people to share it more So it was right around then, and then I'd say into 2020. I mean, when the pandemic hit, I think the show was big for a lot of people just because it's an emotionally soothing show in a lot of ways. It just, it encourages you to just relax and listen to music. I think that was helpful for a lot of people. Mm, So Yeah, totally. You know, I'd say through 2019 through 2020 was when it was clear, okay, this is a thing, this is working. And then by then the Patreon also grew to where it it was paying, you know, a significant a significant enough amount of money that I can live off of that. So I'm curious about um, this this before and after. Like there, there, it does feel like there was like a moment of like, oh, this is happening. Like you know what I mean. Like a lot of people mm-hmm. are noticing, a lot of big people are noticing, and you're getting this confidence infusion, right? Which I'm interested in. I I'm curious about like how you felt right before that. Like when there was no sign of any of that happening. Um, and I, I think I d- just want to ask about the emotion of fear. Like, did you have that emotion of fear before and maybe even after? Because I can imagine different ways in which fear would come up in this uh, venture. I think podcasting, especially solo podcasting, when you're sort of writing a script or even just like talking, monologuing on a microphone can feel vulnerable. Was that something you were feeling before all of this happened? You know, I was pretty confident in it, to be honest. Like, I I think my biggest concern, at least going into it, was that I I was worried that there would be, like, platform shenanigans. I I was worried that, like, there'd be, like, DMCA copyright issues with the Uh, fact that I was, like, fair using music. And that I was going to build up this thing that then would fall apart. And then, you know, I've... I've since dealt with that once really effectively. It's become very clear that it is not a problem. I have like a really the EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation was like very helpful. And I now like have lawyers who are like, yes, we will absolutely protect your show because it's fair use. So like that's kind of huh. gone away. But that was a concern. Like that was something that I was, a, a, I had some fear about or some, I was nervous because I was like, this thing, this format yep. that I'm doing is incredible, but it relies on the freedom to just make an educational product that uses music to explain music. Like I can't really make it another way. I could teach like general music lessons, but like this has to be this thing. So there was a fear there of just, am I building into this product, like the seeds of its own destruction? And so far, I mean, it's been six years and it seems pretty clear to me that that's not the case. And at this point, the show is enough of a, you know, it's enough of a large project that I would like really fight to defend it. Yeah. And I think that and I I think I would win. So like that mm-hmm. is no longer as much of a fear um, in terms of the confidence to make a show to speak, you know, with my own authority and, you know, feel confident, I suppose, like sharing myself with people. I don't know. You know, for me, I guess it's because I was coming back back to music Mm-hmm. from video games mm-hmm. but i had spent 7 or 8 years writing about video games for you know whatever tens of thousands of people i mean millions of people in aggregate but for a huge audience of strangers 
and needing to learn to find the confidence in my own writing voice to just go out there and say, I don't like this. Here's why I like this. Here's why. But about video games, which is a weird thing to do that about because like, you know, I have the courage of my convictions. I can play a game and I got pretty good at interrogating why I liked or didn't like it and then arguing that point in writing. But like, I'm not a video game designer. It's not something that I actually like, you know, I just know what I know from playing games and from talking to lots of people now who make them. But, but it wasn't something that I have the level of expertise with that I do have with music. Mm -hmm. So coming back to music from that, it just felt so secure. I mean, I can hide behind music really like on the show. If I don't feel confident in what I'm saying, I can use music to like enhance my speaking, enhance my point, and then take all of my musical training and like just kind of use that almost as a a secondary tool that it gives me so much more confidence because I really can walk the walk musically. Yeah. And so I I don't know, like I I guess I guess it wasn't I wasn't that concerned because I knew I knew what I was doing. Like I feel very confident musically because like I spent years and years practicing and studying and like becoming a, a capable musician. I'm curious about the choice of the medium of podcasting i feel like Hmm. the answer is pretty obvious right like you were able to use podcasting to sort of like feature music sounds right like you could actually play the music and they could hear it why podcasting over video um for instance like i wonder if you could talk about that yeah uh for a number of reasons i made this decision early on because I, and it, it was for a few reasons. So obviously like YouTube music is a whole thing. Like there are yeah. people like, I don't know, Rick Beato, Adam Neely. There are these people out there who are doing really, really well on YouTube. I mean, they're huge. They are like the defining cultural educational voices in music oh. because millions of people watch their videos. Um, I don't know. I think it would be cool to be that big just because, you know, the, I guess my ego, my, my desire to just have people listen to me. Like I've always liked performing and having an audience. That's yeah. part of this. So I think it's easy to look at those sorts of numbers and those, the reaction and see that as like, oh, that's really aspirational and cool. And video is absolutely the path to get there. Like there are other music podcasts that are really good and that are like Song Exploder, for example, yeah. is bigger than, than strong songs. And, and yet, I think, well, I don't know, they're kind of a sign of their bigness, right, is that they made a Netflix series so that they, right. they pivoted to video, actually. So for starters, I guess, there is the the YouTube of it all, and that I don't like YouTube, and I don't want to make content for YouTube, so yeah. uh, so there's that. Um, part of that is actually related to the copyright stuff and fair use. YouTube, mm-hmm. if you use YouTube, you're just you have to follow YouTube's rules. It's not about fair use. It's not about the law. The yeah. DMCA doesn't really protect you because YouTube will just remonetize your work immediately or just take it down or like flag your channel. I mean, you have no control. So if you want to make a video talking about a Jimi Hendrix solo, I, apparently Jimi Hendrix is notorious about this. The Beatles, the mm-hmm. Eagles, I guess the Eagles are really notorious. If you want to do a, a Hotel California demo, forget it. Like you'll put it up and it'll either get remonetized or you'll get a copyright strike. And that can really mess with you. Like it's a very yeah. vulnerable feeling to get an attack on your channel 
especially if you've been doing it for several years, that suddenly yeah. is like, okay, now I have one strike. Shit, what do I do? You know, I'm yeah. I'm about to lose this thing that I've built up. I have whatever, maybe I have like a million subscribers and now I'm completely at the mercy of Google and Google is just going to say like, no way. Like we have, like our relationship to Universal Music Group is far more important than our, relation to, our relationship to you and your pathetic like million followers. So forget it. So I think that vulnerability just struck me as a non-starter. That's a, for one thing. Yeah. Secondly, I don't like YouTube as a platform and as a community. I think even as a music community, even those, these wonderful educators, I think that because of the algorithm, because of the way that YouTube services certain content, I think that it's just a bad environment for learning. I think that it encourages bad thinking. <laughs> like yeah. I use it a lot. I used to use it more. And, you know, I would watch a lot of music, uh, educational music videos. And I just found there's just a weird samening that starts to happen on yeah. YouTube. And I think feel like this is true in any whatever realm you're in since there are a million youtubes for each individual person yeah for my youtube it's all guitar stuff because yeah. i've been really learning guitar seriously over the last couple of years and it's just it's all the same like it's all i'll <laughs> unlock the fretboard for you in an hour like here's how to play the 10 best riffs and it's always the same riffs and it's you know here's the cage system and here's how to get outside of the cage system and it's all just it's all the same and i yeah. started to i just i feel that from every vantage point i've ever viewed YouTube, like for, for every way that I've ever interacted with YouTube, it just feels that way. So I don't really want to be a part of that. I yes. want to do something that's just me, that just feels like, here's what I like, and here's how I like to think about music, and let me just explain it to you. It's striking so to part me of how, it too. how like how tied the model is to the, vid the video medium, right? Like how mm -hmm. you really can't talk about video on the internet without talking about YouTube, which is this algorithmic thing and you compare yeah, that and, and a monopoly which is, like yeah which is not true right it would be like if you couldn't i mean i guess when you talk about podcasting people talk about spotify or they talk about apple Podcasts, but it's not the same thing it's so that gets me air. actually yeah. that's yeah. very different so that gets me to yet another thing which is podcasting is decentralized uh -huh. and i have true yep. control over my work and like i cannot overstate how much that means to me mm -hmm. and how much it's come to mean to me over the course of the time I've been making strong songs. I mentioned yeah. the one time I had an issue with a DMCA takedown. That was like a very scary moment for me in mm. I think like 2020 where I got a DMCA takedown and I didn't know what to do. Mm. I had a friend, a former colleague at Gawker actually, who worked at the EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, who are an amazing nonprofit legal organization that they do, they wage all kinds of battles related to the internet and information and uh, fair use is a big thing that they're they're in favor of, but they do all kinds of stuff. Yeah, They're always fighting with the government over stuff. They're very cool. And they uh, helped me out and were able to like, you know, I responded to the takedown, which is the way those things work. You, you have two weeks. If you just reply and are like, no, you can't take this down, then it just gets put back up and they can sue you if they want to, but they never want to sue you because all the labels are just, they just send a million of the takedowns out because they know no one is going to fight them. Right. It's a whole like I imbalanced bullying thing. It really sucks. Like well, the way that, the way what it was works. at oh, stake for you when they sent that? So there was the request was take down a specific episode. Was that the idea? Yeah, it was a, the episode I made on the Beatles okay. on um, 
uh, a day in the life, which is an episode yeah. I'm really proud of. And it was a whole pr- it was a whole feeling of like, okay, well, it's just this one episode. Maybe I'll just leave it down. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, no, like forget it. I spent a long time on that. That episode is great. And like, there's nothing wrong with me talking about how great this song is yeah. and using examples of the song to demonstrate that. Like, this is clearly transformative use. This is clearly like educational. And I'm not even selling ads against it. I just have a Patreon. Like, give me a break. So, anyways, this was the also the take of the lawyer from the EFF who wrote an incredible response letter for me. Uh, It's very fun to have a lawyer get like kind of righteously indignant on your behalf. (laughs) And I put it back up. But what was also at stake was that my hosting was at risk because the hosting platform that I was using, they have a they have like their own terms of service about Uh what you can post. And it got into like, I don't know if this is technically a violation because they say you can't violate copyright law, which this doesn't. But then they got kind of weird about it. And I got worried where I was like, oh, crap, like I can't host my show here anymore. So I switched. I switched yeah. to a different hosting platform. And I um I like set up a whole way that I can redirect my RSS feed very easily that makes it possible for me to switch hosting whenever I need to. Like mm-hmm. if that ever comes up again, mm-hmm. my distribution to my audience is no longer at risk. It would be really inconvenient. I'd prefer that didn't happen. Yeah. But but it can happen and it's okay. And that's because of the decentralized nature of RSS. Like it is just possible to change hosting. There's a bunch of different hosting, like podcast hosting platforms that you can use. It doesn't really matter which one you use. They all do the same thing and they all serve the same distribution platforms like Apple and Spotify and RIP Stitcher, I guess, but you know, the ones that still exist. So because of that, like that is just extremely valuable. And the, the DMCA thing, like that's one example of that, mm-hmm. but it goes across a million different use cases. I mean, even if you don't mess with, you know, fair use or anything like that, it's still so much better to have control over your work. Like it, I think people who are doing work for YouTube, I get why you do it. Like it's a great platform in some ways. It's great for, you know, signal boosting and it's great for building an audience, but yeah it's just not worth it to me to build an audience somewhere that I don't actually, I don't have any control. Like I don't actually have that audience. And if Google decides tomorrow to just cancel my show, then Mm -hmm. everything I've done for years just goes up in smoke. And like, to me, that's way too big of a risk to take. Yeah, totally. So uh, that story reminds me of back in the day, I feel like there was um, a lot of debate around like what kind of music can you use on a podcast? And of course you had Mm -hmm. like the sort of amateur podcasters who would just like take a Kanye song and throw it on the front of their podcast (laughs) and like think that was fine. And so a lot of the messaging was towards that sort of thing. But I remember reading like so many articles that were along the line. One specifically was like a fact about when, what kind of music you can use on a podcast Mm -hmm. license, like what kind of, and and the uh, every answer was no. It was like a, a joke, a jokey sort of article that was like, you oh, cannot sure. use it. You cannot use it. You cannot use it. So it's kind of nice to talk to you. And you're not a lawyer. I should clarify that. You're not yeah. giving legal advice. But it was very much just like a play it safe kind of approach. And Which I think, is good advice, right, yeah. for a lot of podcasters. And yeah. I, especially when it comes to just using music as like your intro or your yes. stinger or something. Yes. I mean, which yes. is very different than what I'm talking different about, than right? Like that stuff. is, I think, an important distinction for your listeners is that I'm talking about commentary, like specifically about the track where I play mm-hmm. an example of the song and the whole like existence of the conversation relies on this 
example that I'm then picking apart and replaying and analyzing and talking about. Like that's where fair use comes into it. That's the educational and transformative use. If you are just taking a Kanye song and using it as your intro stinger for your show, like, yeah, you're actually violating Kanye's copyright. Like that's actually pretty clear cut. And I can see why you would give the advice to someone of just like, you know, don't worry about it because the only time really that you would want to use an example is when you're doing something like what I'm talking about. Like you're specifically talking about the clip in question or you're doing analysis of it. Like I think it's totally like I'll listen to lots of podcasts now where they'll be like, oh, the new AI Drake song or whatever. They're like, it sounds like this Drake song and they'll play a little clip of the song. Like that's totally fair use. Like that's completely Uh fair Uh as long as you're talking about the thing. So that's the distinction that I see. I've talked to lawyers about it, but yeah, I'm not a lawyer, but that's my understanding. And I have seen those articles where they're like, no, 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 just don't do it. And I get where they're coming from, even though... Yeah, it's much more nuanced than that. What do you think makes you a good podcaster? Oh, man. Am I a good podcaster? What is it about you specifically, (laughs) ontologically, that makes you a good podcaster? Um, I don't know. I I know what I I hear from people. Like, I I think people like the way I talk. I think um, I hear from a lot of people that it sounds like I'm smiling when I talk. That's a very common... (laughs) Um, yeah. A common thing that people will say, which is true. Um, I am smiling a lot when I talk, especially when yeah. I'm making strong songs. So to, specifically to strong songs, I think that what makes the show appealing or what makes me appealing on the show mm-hmm. is that I really love what I'm doing. Like, mm. I really love talking about music. I love the music I'm listening to. Um, getting back to sort of the the getting away from the algorithm thing, like not being on YouTube. Every song I talk about on Strong Songs is like one of my favorite songs. And I'm not really picking songs according to what I think will be popular. And then there are there have been times where I've gone a little bit more with a song that I feel like, oh, okay, I know people will like this because it's whatever, a classic rock song. And there are times where those episodes can feel like a little more work. And I think it's still, I don't think it sounds like I'm not into it on the show because invariably I'll find something to be excited about. Yeah. Just that's kind of how I relate to music. But um, but those do feel a little bit harder. But mostly the show is just me being like, okay, Mr. Blue Sky, this has been one of my favorite songs for 10 years, for 20 yeah. years. I can just enthuse about it. And so that that I think there's a sense of joy there that comes out in the show. I sometimes wonder also if the fact that I spent 10 years, I spent most of my 30s not really making music or teaching music, <laughs> made me appreciate it more that I when I came back to doing it mm. and that I I feel this like joy this sense of relief at coming back to something that was such a core part of my life for 25 years or 30 years that then I kind of put on the back burner for seven or eight years while I was working in media and working at Kotaku that then I got to come back to and it's this feeling of relief and joy that I always feel when I am playing music or listening to music or talking about music that I think comes across in the show. So I think that is a really important part of yeah. the show's appeal. And and I, I know just from what I've heard from listeners that it's something they like about it. Yeah. It, there's, do you feel like, um, so it, it is like this important ingredient is like Kirk is excited about this. Like that is mm-hmm. an inherent sort of tonal quality of your show. How do you maintain that over time? Yeah. It's a habit. I mean, it's, you know, I just, I make the show the way I make it. And when I'm making the show, I'm pretty, I'm pretty in the zone just of Uh making it. And I just, I just know how to feel that way because music makes me feel that way. Like it's, Uh I don't know. It's like if you need to get pumped up, if a boxer needs to get pumped up for a fight, 
like the more they do it, they just get, I'm, I'm guessing I'm not a boxer, but I'm guessing you just get pretty good at like getting psyched to punch this person, you know, and like fight. That's gotta <laughs> right, be hard, right? right? Like if yes, you're a box, yeah. I mean, I couldn't do that. It'd be really hard to like get in that headspace. Yeah. But I bet if you're a fighter, like you've been training for a long time, you know how to get yourself in the headspace you need to be in, right? I kind of picked that example at random, but a uh, performer, yeah. whatever, anybody who has to like perform or like get in some certain mentality that isn't their day-to-day mentality hopefully most boxers aren't like ready to fight anyone at any moment Uh maybe they are um so i i think i just it's a habit and um some of it is just an ability to kind of compartmentalize i mean i don't know when there are hard things going on in my life like this past season my my folks health hasn't been good my mom has been sick and i've been having to deal with it and help my sister deal with it and travel down there and it's been really taxing and difficult and um that's that made it harder to make the show like in that season there were times where i had to say okay no honestly like i was planning to do this really in-depth episode and i just can't and i had to just Uh run an old bonus episode in the main feed and you know i kind of alluded to it with people i'd be like hey like i've got some stuff going on like i just couldn't get the episode done here's this bonus episode i hope you all like it i'll be back in two weeks and people have been very forgiving of that for the most part as far as i know anyway but um when when it's time to actually make the show i just i have to like allow myself the space and then just kind of compartmentalize it and just get in that zone yeah. and the music kind of gets me there like even if i'm worried about something else i'm stressed about something else in the end i sit down you know i put on peter gabriel and pretty soon i'm smiling and talking into the microphone uh-huh. i'm sort of like engaging with this conversation and and thinking to myself like I, that sounds really nice because when I do podcasting, I think a lot of what is going through my mind is a lot of insecurity and a lot of like mm-hmm. s- wondering what the audience thinks. I've talked about this before, but like the audience is in my head a lot. Um, that is something sure. that I personally struggle with a lot and not just the audience as a, like a big mass that loves what I do, but like every individual person's perspective <laughs> and, and yeah. pushback and that sort of thing. You mentioned earlier, like you don't read reviews. Is that like a core piece of what keeps you from going down that road? Yeah, probably. I mean, I, so when I was at Kotaku, I never read comments. I, I Very rarely. There was a period where we had to, and it was a nightmare. Like they, we had to reply to a certain number of comments of on every post did. or yeah. something. Yeah. What a mess. Um, and you know, largely comments are, are positive even there. Like, but I just didn't read them because it, yeah, it gets in your head. Um, so that's been a long time habit for my own mental health is just not really engaging because it's very hard for me to read, you know, someone disagreeing with or criticizing my work like it just gets stuck in my head and if I want criticism of my work like there are ways that I can find it that is very constructive for me and helpful reading some random person who I don't even know who they are that's not helpful Uh with strong songs it's interesting because like the vast vast overwhelming majority of feedback to the show is positive yeah it's just not a show that like makes people mad it's not a show that people (laughs) like want to go and leave a negative review for yeah I'm sure there have been people who are like, oh, he, you know, I don't know, he he's too cavalier with like music theory terms or he like got this thing counting wrong on this song yeah. or whatever. Or like he, there's probably a few people who are like, he's he's super woke and always talking about how great female musicians are or something. I don't know. Like there's probably some people who get mad about that. Yeah. But by and large, they're positive. And it was a boost for a while to read the Apple reviews because it'd be like, wow, like just nonstop positive reviews like that feels good to read them 
I was hes- I was always nervous about that, even from the beginning, just because that kind of validation is just dangerous. Like with your work, if you're getting a lot of validation, you can also lose that validation. Like there's, it's just totally the double-edged sword where, yeah, you're getting a lot out of those reviews, but then the minute you read one that's like, this guy's trash, he doesn't know what he's talking about, his voice sucks, you know, he's clearly bad at music. Like they say something really mean. Yeah. Um, and those are all, literally none of those are things that people have even said. They're all things that I imagine in my head, which goes uh-huh. to show like how <laughs> those insecurities, like the minute someone hits one of them, you feel terrible and you, and you, yeah. you know, you like fixate on it and you can't let it go. And for a couple of days, it kind of ruins your day. Uh-huh. You're like, man, F that guy, that was so mean, but also maybe he's right. Oh my God, maybe I am trash. And like, it's not worth the risk because if you remove all of that stuff, I'd still keep making the shows having fun making it and like what matters is that I'm making the show and having fun making it so I kind of avoid that Um, also I find there's just a distorting effect that happens when you read uh, you know like we have a discord for triple click Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of people on it's a very active discord server I have one for strong songs too which is great but it's a much more chill you know there's there's a fair number of people there but it's a more chill thing triple click it's like a big discord like thousands of people on there yeah and so there's like lots of people talking in every conversation and there's a whole thread for the show every week and i just don't really read those because when i do read them it's not even that like people are mean or anything like that i just i just I can't help but put too much weight on what is being said. Yeah. Even if it's just they're talking about the game that we talked about. It's not even about what we said. I just am seeing them saying, oh, man, like matchmaking is such a pain for this game. It's just really hard for me to matchmake into a team. And someone else saying, yeah, I agree. Just that. It's like I'll have that in my head as like, oh, yeah, people say matchmaking is a problem for this game. Like, and I don't think that's necessarily true. Like, it's like a couple people in our Discord said that and yeah. like saw them. And like, because they're in our Discord, I kind of assigned a uh, disproportionate weight to oh that. Oh my gosh, but, Kirk, I'm like having a moment of r- realization. Like, this is a <laughs> this is a thing for me. Like, I, I, I feel like I launched a podcast this past week. It's a local podcast. So the audience is very concrete for who this mm-hmm. podcast is for. And um, yeah, like a couple people say a couple things and now I'm like, this is now what, especially for a local podcast, the, the sample size right. is not huge anyway. So a couple of people say, say a couple things and it's it, again, not criticism, just like, I hope you interview this kind of person or right. whatever. And I'm like, oh, now I've got to do that. It's like a mandate, right. you know, and yeah. it's something I've got to march forward with. It's know? like the internet megaphone syndrome or something. I mean, it's a, it's a version of the loudest voices being the ones that everyone thinks define the trend, yeah. even though we don't really know that. Like, just because some people are saying something, it just is not in any way indicative of a broader trend. And so... You know, that it's not a bad thing to pay attention to what your audience is saying. I love, I mean, I respond to every email that I get at Strong Songs, which has just been cumulatively thousands of emails. Like I, it's a part of the job and I take it really seriously. And I really like responding to people. Like, and they all, everyone writes in with a recommendation or a request. Sometimes they'll write in with, you know, feedback or or criticisms. And for some reason in that one-on-one format, I have no problem with it. I don't, I don't think it's uh, it doesn't like blow my it doesn't kick like knock off the balance of how I think the show is being received. Um, I just it's like because I maybe because I write everybody back. So it feels like there was just like a little dialogue between me and all these people. Yeah. But it, that feels fine. It's yeah. something about the like public nature of like re- posted reviews or like message board conversations that just feels more like I'm kind of 
observing from the outside, and so I'm drawing these conclusions in a way that that uh, that isn't as helpful. How has podcasting changed you? I probably talk more. I, <laughs> I worry that I'm like a less fun conversationalist in real life because I'm so used to to talking either on strong songs to just you know monologuing. I mean. Now on Strong Songs, I write the scripts out, so it's a little different. I'm not okay. just extemporizing. Like, I read a script, so it's different. But I still am used to the format of speaking in paragraphs. Mm-hmm. And then on Triple Click, because of how we record and because of the three of our personalities and the way I edit the show, there's a lot of kind of – you fight for your space a little bit. Like, it's it's not quite like that, but there is a, a bit of, like, I have a take. Oh, I want to respond to that. Okay, I'm going to go. Like, it's pretty high energy, and all three of us, Maddie, Jason, and I, are all, like – you know, we love talking and we have a lot of opinions. And so it's yeah. a very high energy yeah. conversation. And, you know, most people aren't like that. Like people that I hang out with aren't like that. So I, I yeah. worry sometimes that I am, uh, that I I have to, I guess, consciously shift out of that gear and just listen to people and shut up. Like I try to go to parties and social events and literally like if I can get out of the party without ever having like taken over the conversation or told a story about myself uh-huh. or like even like told people what I do for a living. I, yeah. I almost think that that's a win because yeah. I'm trying to balance for the tendency to like take over and, and be like, blah, 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 blah. I'm so excited. Ah, let me tell you all about the blah, 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 this new TV show or this album I'm listening to or whatever. Uh-huh. And like, I think that can be very, I'm sure that can be suffocating to people and sort of off-putting, and I really don't want to be that. So that's maybe a negative way that podcasting has changed me. It's so funny how tied to format that is because, like, the two podcasts you do are, like, a chat show with, like you said, three people who just, like, are Mm -hmm. not talking over each other, but they're they're all anxious to talk. And then you've got um, a monologue show where – it's just mm-hmm. you're it's you it's very completely. different and a very different kind of talking like very different process yeah and and me so what's funny is that your experience is diametrically opposed to my experience because huh. i do a lot of interview podcasts like this and mm-hmm. i do it because it makes me better <laughs> it makes me a better right. person i have this problem inherently where i will talk too much i care too much about myself i'm too interested talk in, to talk about myself and so mm-hmm. when i go to parties or hang out with a friend i will say i will like click into podcast mode i will feel it happening where i'm like <laughs> asking interview questions essentially that's good people. though so i find that interviewing has been really helpful for me and yeah. i love doing it now yeah. because it's it was not a strength of mine when i started it out at Kotaku I would interview game developers and I was terrible at it I would like always talk and talk and talk like I'd it would be I'd be like one of those interviewers who says a huge thing because I think I'm so smart yep. and then the, the developer is like okay so like what's your question like all right I guess I'm <laughs> right. impressed with like yeah. the Steve thought you had but like what and then yeah. learned over time to not do that which I think is it's just like any skill you have to learn how to do it and how to yeah. just come up with questions beforehand and then get out of the way and ask the question. And then also how to be in the moment in the conversation and ask follow-ups, which is still something I'm working on. I mean, it's not, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's a hard, it's a skill that you have to develop that I notice when I listen to people like God, like Ezra Klein, if you ever listen to his podcast, mm-hmm. like people don't realize how good he is at what he does <laughs> and how much of a result that is of him and his team, like being an incredibly yeah well-oiled machine like his producers i'm forgetting his name the guy who sounds just like him who sometimes subs and then a couple of the people that are have been in the credits for his show for years and years i mean i think since vox like since before he was at the new york times those like they all build this 
whole like it's like a mechanism that he is just the front facing like he's the face of it that allows for these incredible conversations and like these very informed follow-ups to draw people out that is like he's like one of the best in the game and he's Mm -hmm. so so good at it so those skills like developing that skill over time has I think been really good for me as a conversationalist, like like what you described, being at a party. If I can be in interview mode at a party, yeah. I love that feeling because yeah. people like people don't get interviewed like most That's people, right. and it's yeah. fun being interviewed. It's fun like people like to tell you about their job. Even just uh, recently, I was hanging out with a friend and we were talking about his job, and I was asking him just about how he organizes his work because I'd been thinking about it because I've been like working on a new structure for Strong Songs and like pre-production, and it was really fun to like keep asking follow-ups to be like, okay, so like how do you keep track of the schedule? Like, well, how many different projects do you have on your team? And like really asking, and he's like down to talk about it because he's like, I mean, this is interesting to me because it's my job and I never get to tell anyone about it. So anyways, I think like interview skills can actually be very good uh, for for parties, do you find that when you're like talking to people at parties that you that that's like a rewarding yes. interaction for both parties? A hundred percent. Yes. Yeah. I I it, it is the thing I I rely on and like um yeah. There's just like I it is hard for me to like be that naturally to do that naturally. But I think like mm-hmm. if I can click into interview mode, then um which you know it's just a skill you have to learn, and I think that's fine. Then I I find that people are like. Yeah, like you said, like people are like being interviewed. More importantly, they like people caring about them, you know? Yeah, exactly. That's what's nice about being if you're being interviewed, the the, yeah. the like assumption is that you're interesting enough to be interviewed and that just feels good. Like yes. it's nice to have someone be interested in you. And so doing that for somebody else, like asking somebody that, yeah, you're like you're not you are interested. Like you have you almost have to be to be a good interviewer, right? Yes. So you you are displaying interest in whatever they're talking about. You're also mining for connection, right? Like you're mining for something mm-hmm. that you have in common or that you might could yeah, connect yeah. over that um that that could sort of move that relationship to the next level. That's true. That's true. Cause it can be hard if you're like, so what do you do? And they're like, well, I'm in finance. You're like, Oh cool. What does that mean? And it's like, well, I like, I do this, you know, really arcane, crappy, terrible financing. And you're like, Oh man. (laughs) And then it's just like, wow, you've been watching any good TV shows lately. Like it just, you kind of have to pivot to something else. Pop culture. It always goes to pop culture. Okay. I have, (laughs) I have the last question. Um, Okay. If you could get in the time machine, Go back in time, come out of that time machine, and then talk to yourself. What would mm-hmm. you tell that person? Wait, when is when? When am I going back to? It's up to you. Oh, right, let's say let's say like before you started a podcast. Before I started a podcast, um, oh man, I yeah, would. It's tricky because I'm pretty happy with how things have worked out. So it's mm-hmm. not like I would be like get into this earlier. Though I suppose getting into podcasting earlier would have been cool. I would have told myself in like 2007 to get at Kirk on Twitter when that would have been cool. I don't know. That's smart. Um, (laughs) I think, I mean, I would go back and tell my music school self to diversify my music training. I think that's something that I, Uh that is like a, not a regret, but it's like a fantasy of, Uh of if I could have known the skills that I would need now versus the skills that I was studying then I was a jazz saxophone performance major. Yeah. Um, I think that would be something like that is a, a version of myself that I would love to talk to, to say what you really need to be doing right now is learning piano. Mm. You need to start learning guitar now. You need to take vocal lessons with these incredible singers at the jazz vocal program at University of Miami. Like Uh you could be studying with them for four years for like, I think free, like it could just be part of your tuition. So do that. 
And like, yeah, jazz saxophone is cool. Like it's your major, I guess. So you have to study it and practice it and like get good. But like, it's just, it's not going to be, you're not going to be a jazz saxophone. That's, that's not a thing. Uh, <laughs> like, yeah, and yeah. so you're, you want to build these other skills up. Um, I, I really think that, you know, I am the musician that I am because of the journey that I took. Um, and that's great. Like, that's important that I took that. But I, I wonder about what I would have been like if I had started out with a more holistic approach to music and and a better understanding of what it actually means to be a professional musician or what it would mean for me over the next 20 years. Yeah. It, it's really interesting because really what you're drawing out is like the multidisciplinary nature of podcasting to some extent. Sure. Like you're you're yeah. talking about things that like you do on your podcast every week and like the ways that like just having these different skills can completely alter what your podcast feels or sounds like, you know? Yeah, definitely. I think, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's true for podcasting and it's true for everything. Like I've always had mm. this kind of professional, like the professional theory, I always, I call it the bag theory. It's a long story, but basically that you put stuff in your bag when you know how to do it okay. and whatever you have in your bag, that's kind of you as a professional person, like as a creative yeah. person and that you're, you should think as expansively about your bag as possible. So it's not, it, it resists specialization, right? If yeah. this was a jazz saxophonist, a, uh, Dave Liebman, he's like this whatever jazz legend, gave me this advice when I was 17. And he's like, well, you know, I play saxophone, sure. Like I can solo on tenor sax. That's in my bag for sure. But also I can double. I can play flute and clarinet. All right, that goes in your bag. But then also like he's a long distance runner and he puts that in his bag and he actually wrote a, a beautiful jazz suite about the loneliness of the long distance runner. And so he's kind of bringing his own experiences into it and considering this skill that he's built up long distance running as actually a part of his creative self. Yeah. And then he's a great writer. He's like a very skilled writer and he's written these wonderful books about jazz and philosophy. He also sees that as a skill that fits in with music, which I think resists some of the ways that we're taught to learn things, or at least mm -hmm. the way that musicians and artists are taught where you're, you're very you know, core disciplinary. I yeah. learned jazz saxophonist and it's, it, that does tie in with what you're saying and the advice that I would give myself, which is, you know, that bag theory that you think is so cool. I mean, I wrote my college entrance exam, you know, that college entrance exam you wrote for jazz school about how having a lot of different interests is good. Lean into that even more. Like that is very true and will continue to be true yes. throughout your career. And there are so many skills that you could be developing that will be useful to you. So yeah. I guess it would be maybe pointing myself in the right direction. Learn audio production a little bit earlier. You know, uh -huh. get serious about guitar a little earlier. Take piano more seriously a little bit earlier, just because those are going to be the ones that you really need to know. Good stuff. Well, Kurt, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, My pleasure. If you're a video game fan listen to triple click it's a great yeah. podcast one of my standbys you are a music fan according to kirk um so yes. go ahead and just subscribe to strong songs it's great i think honestly i think that's pretty pretty safe if you like music at all you'll probably find something in strong songs 100 agree yeah thanks kirk thanks for coming on yeah thanks so much Rishka. thanks for having me